0: All right, a reading from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy. Thanks be to God.
1: You all may be seated. Morning everyone. Before I jump in, I just want to I just want to pray. Have we You're seated here under you today that you are enthroned in the highest heaven. You are holy. And I pray this morning that you would give us a revelation of your goodness, a revelation of your grace, a revelation of your mercy. And I pray that this morning would be a morning that changes us. This morning would be a morning that marks us. This morning would be a morning that sets our souls aflame for you. And we cry out to you, the living God, to be present with us this morning, to reveal yourself to us. It's in Christ's name, amen. I'm going to try not to cry this morning, but that's probably not going to happen. I've been weepy all morning. Um, Since I was a young adult my freshman year in college, revival's been something that has been something that I so desire to see in my life, and the life of the church, and the life of our nation, in the world around us. And I don't know what the Lord's doing right now, but um, there's been this, this, this move of God at Asbury University this week that started Wednesday morning in a chapel service where 20 students after chapel was over, they didn't go to class, they just stayed there and they kept praying and they were confessing their sin and they were responding to what the Lord was doing. And it's been going on 24-7 since then. And this morning, I haven't stopped weeping, I haven't stopped crying, I haven't stopped thinking about the Lord enthroned over heaven and earth. This this passage that we're talking about today, we're seeing the Lord do it in our time, we're seeing Him do it again. The Lord isn't done moving, the Lord isn't done with the church, the Lord isn't done with this nation, the Lord isn't done with the world, He is still moving, and it's what we come together today to celebrate. We're continuing our series today called The Story I Tell. It's, it's a series that we've been diving into these stories throughout the Old Testament, focused in on two things. We've been focused in on how God comes into our lives and changes our stories. How he comes in personally and moves in us and radically changes everything about us. That's the first portion of it. The second portion of it is that he then enlists us to go and tell of his story to those around us. He does something in us, something mighty, something tangible, where he rewrites everything. And then he sends us out into the world around us to proclaim what God has done in us. You know, as Christians, we're called to be Great Commission people. We're called to be people that take the gospel to the world around us. But over the years, something has gone wrong a bit. We're supposed to be these Great Commission people, but in 2018, the Barna Group did a survey, and only 17% of churchgoers in the United States had both heard of and remembered the Great Commission. 17% of churchgoers in the United States had heard of and remembered the Great Commission. When they were given a list of options among four different options, only 37% of them were able to correctly pick what the Great Commission was, even with them standing right there in front of their faces. Now, I don't think that that would be true of our church. I don't think that would be true of the Christian and Missionary Alliance as a whole. I think we would be able uh, to pick that out and remember the Great Commission, or at least that's my hope uh, more so than anything else. While we may know what the Great Commission is, though, I don't think that we're actively seeking to fulfill it. I think we know the Great Commission. I think we we have an understanding of the Great Commission. Most of us do, at least. But I don't think it's truly been something that has marked our lives, that's changed us from the inside out. You know, I think we will see videos like this one of Kama we will be moved by what God is doing, how, and he'll move us to respond with our, our money to the Great Commission Fund, and that is good. But I want to ask us the question, how many of us are actively sharing the gospel with those around us? How many of us are actively sharing the good news that God has done this mighty work of salvation upon the cross. That while we were enemies of God, he made a way of reconciliation. I think if we're honest, most of us would say we're not doing that. We're not sharing of that story. It's something that I'm hoping this morning will, will reset a bit. Because when Jesus is ending his earthly ministry, he's spent 33 years on the earth. He's done these mighty miracles. He's taught this incredible teaching. And after his death and resurrection, he comes to his disciples right before he ascends into heaven. And he tells them of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And of the promise of the power to be witnesses in the world around them in Acts 1. And I want to just read both of those for us. This morning before we dive in uh, too far. This is the Great Commission in Matthew twenty eight, nineteen and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And then right after that, he says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. He's still with us. His commission still stands. He's still sending us out. But it's not on our own power that we go into the world because in Acts 1.8, Jesus says this to the disciples. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is what Jesus has commissioned us to do and what he's empowered us to do by the Holy Spirit coming upon us. These two things drastically mark who we are as Christians, or at least they should drastically mark who we are as Christians. If we're sitting here today and we've been forgiven by Jesus, if we've received his grace, if we've received his salvation, if we remember that we were enemies of God, but now we're part of the family of God, we should see that and become a heralds of his kingdom, heralds of salvation, heralds of forgiveness, taking this good news to the world around us. It is the greatest news in all the world. The greatest news in all the world. And God himself has empowered us to go share it, with the world around us. He has given us a message. He has done something in us, and he's saying to us, go into all the world. As disciples of Jesus, we have been commissioned by God. In John 20, verse 21, Jesus says this to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. As the Father sent Jesus, he is sending us as well. The same disciples, he's, he's saying this to the same disciples that abandoned him a few chapters earlier, that abandoned him when he was crucified, that ran away, but they come back to him. They were, he, he restores them. He shows them his mercy and his grace. And then he gives them the, this commission. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I highlight that this morning. I highlight the past of the disciples because God, the beauty of his story, the beauty of the story of God is that he enlists misfits and sinners and those who once lived as his enemies to be heralds of his kingdom, to take the good news of the gospel and invite those who were once as we were to come banquet with the king to come sit at his table, to come experience the goodness and the grace and the kindness of God. And I know for most of us sitting here, that idea is terrifying, right? It's terrifying to take this message and share it with others. We're like, I don't want to do that. I'd rather send someone else to go do that. But I think if we can understand and grasp how God accomplishes this in us, it wouldn't be so scary. If we can see what God is up to and how he accomplishes this, it won't be too scary for us. And I think Isaiah's life, as depicted here in Isaiah 6, is a perfect picture of this process. Here's just a, a big picture overview before we dive in. Isaiah sees God. He sees God high and exalted, and then he sees his sin. He sees the sin of his people, of his nation. He cries out, woe is me. And then he receives redemption. He receives restoration. He receives forgiveness. He receives atonement. And then he's sent by God to those around him. That's what we're going to be exploring this morning. What's the process that we're going to see play out? And so we're going to start in verses one through four of Isaiah six. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. This is the vision that Isaiah sees. You know, our passage doesn't start with Isaiah being sent out. It doesn't start with Isaiah being commissioned. It starts with Isaiah seeing the Lord high and lifted up. It starts with him seeing who God is, because before we can ever serve God, before we can ever be sent out, we must know who God is. A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's only when we have a proper understanding of who God is that we can effectively serve Him and those around us. We have to know God before we can serve others. I want to give you the whole secret of effective ministry, all right? You guys don't have to go to seminary. I'm going to give you the whole secret to effective ministry this morning know God deeply and intimately. Know God deeply and intimately. Everything else flows from there. Ministry flows from knowing God. And knowing God is first and foremost about knowing his characteristics, knowing who he is. That's why Isaiah 6.1 starts with God seated on a throne. He's exalted above all others. When Isaiah encounters God, God is revealing himself to Isaiah as the king of heaven and earth, the highly exalted one, the God that is above all things, including every other ruler on earth. He is the rightful king of the world, the rightful one who is enthroned above all things. And that's really important for Isaiah's context, because in this first part of verse one, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. And King Uzziah was this king who started off his kingdom really well. He followed the Lord faithfully, and then pride got a hold of him, and he turned He thought himself bigger than he was, that he could do whatever he wanted to do. And so Isaiah sees the rightful king, the king of heaven and earth, not this king that that fell away, not this king that turned from God, but the rightful king of all the earth, the rightful king of everyone, seated exalted and highly enthroned. And what this tells us in Isaiah is that God's character is not marred by what his creation does. God's character is not marred by what his creation does. It means that what we see in the world around us doesn't diminish who God is. God is holy. He is glorious. What we do is an affront to God. It's our rebellion against God. It doesn't diminish who God is, though. God is the rightful ruler. He is the supreme ruler. And as the supreme ruler of heaven and earth, his goal, his mission, is to reestablish order in his creation. To make all things new. This is the grand narrative of Scripture. We start with God creating the heavens and the earth. And then right after that, we see us as humans, making a mess of it. And then the rest of the book, the rest of the story, is God's plan of redemption, of how he's recreating all things, how he's making all things new. We can't just see God as creator, because he is creator, but he's also ruler. He doesn't just set things in motion and then walk away. He is still intimately working for the good of his creation. Isaiah 6, 2 through 4 reveals the type of king that our God is. He is a king that is holy. He is unlike any other. Day and night, night and day, these magnificent creatures that I think if we saw them, we would be terrified They sit around God, worshiping Him night and day. They're enamored with who is before them. They're enamored with this God, this Creator, this Ruler. And all they can do is get these words out over and over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In Revelation 4, the apostle John also has a vision of the throne room. And he sees this happening, this holy, holy, holy. But then he sees those responding as well, worthy, worthy, worthy. That's who our God is. He is holy and he is worthy. He is above all things and he is worthy of all things. There is no one like our God. Do you get how incredible this God is? He has someone, these these creatures around him all day, every day, that can't help but praise him, they can't help but sing of his glory. They can't help but sing of his character. He is enthroned above all things as the holy one, the perfectly holy one. And to be holy means to be set apart. It means to be completely different. It means to be perfect. God's holiness communicates that he is above all things. And because of that, he rightfully has the authority to rule over the earth. Because he is perfectly pure. Because he is perfectly blameless. Because he never makes mistakes. Because he never does evil. He is the rightful ruler of heaven and earth. And because of that, he has the right to tell us the way in which we are to live. God alone is all-powerful. God alone is worthy of following. God alone is worthy of all praise. His holiness, it never wavers. He never turns aside from what the good, the true, and the beautiful. He never turns from that. He is perfectly holy. And that evokes a response from us, His creation. And that response should be holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I think it's time for us to regain a high view of a perfectly holy God. To see our God for who he is. Not who we want him to be. Not who we wish he would be. But seeing our God for who he actually is. In the day-to-day lives of most people... God is seemingly unimportant, even if they wouldn't admit that. We don't, we don't like to go there. We don't like to admit that. But I think if we were to examine the day-to-day of our lives, moment by moment, if we had an account of, our, of the average day, God wouldn't even make the top ten. We say he's important, but we live as though he isn't. By unimportant, I mean as evidenced as how we think, act, and live. We don't give much thought to God throughout the day. We don't think about his will. We don't think about his love for the person beside us. We don't think about what he's doing around us. We don't give him much thought. But this God sits enthroned in heaven. He sits enthroned over all the earth. And he's commanded us to live lives that are pleasing to him. Holy lives in light of his own holiness. He has commanded us to live in light of who he is. Not to say, yeah, there's a God out there, I'm going to live how I want. But to say, there's a God out there, and because of that, I'm going to live in light of who this God is. Everything about me is going to be lived and submitted to this God. Our response to God is to worship him with the entirety of who we are. With everything that we are. To offer our lives as living sacrifices. The prophet Micah, who's a contemporary of Isaiah, writes this in Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love, mercy, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? God's holiness requires that we respond rightly to him in all that we do. We don't get to pick and choose what we submit to God and what we don't submit to God. He has called us to submit all things to him, to live lives in light of who he is. That means in our jobs, in our families, in our relationships, in everything that we are, we are to submit all of those things to God and live in light of him. But this is difficult. It's hard. It's impossible on our own because there's sin raging inside of us. And the sin inside of us is at war with what God is trying to accomplish in us. We live as enemies of God. We live in the flesh and we have to surrender. We have to repent. We have to receive God's forgiveness and restoration so that we can live like this. Live lives that are pleasing to God. And Isaiah is no exception to this rule. He's no exception at all. And I want us to look at verses 5 through 7 to show us Isaiah's response to the Lord's holiness. He says this, "'Woe to me,' I cried. "'I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips.'" Upon seeing the Holy One of Israel, Isaiah doesn't cry out, oh, that's cool. Cool, God, thanks. That was a cool story. All right, I'm going to go live my life how I want to. Upon seeing God, high and exalted, seeing this perfectly holy God, Isaiah responds, woe is me. Woe is Is me. I am ruined. The right understanding of God always leads us to see our own unrighteousness. A right view of God always leads us to see where we have sinned against Him, where we have gone astray, where we have lived for ourselves instead of Him. It leads us to recognize our sin and our wrongdoing against a holy God. Our society today tries to live as though this isn't true. It tells us that, yeah, there may be a God, do whatever you want, live the way that you want to. All ways are valid, everything is okay. And you would think with a philosophy like that, everyone would be happy, right? Everyone would be living their best lives. Everyone would be satisfied. But the reality is since this philosophy became the dominant cultural philosophy of our world, depression and anxiety have skyrocketed. They're at all-time highs in the United States. It's as as though our bodies are rebelling against the dominant cultural philosophy of our world. They're rebelling uh, against the the message of be true to yourself. Our bodies see it as bogus. They're actively rebelling against, uh, against it, helping us to see that there's a different way. That it's not about whatever we want to do. It's not about living our lives however we want. But it's about living our lives in light of God. It's about surrendering to him. Isaiah gets a glimpse of a holy God. And in response, he realizes that he's dead in his sin. That his sin is an affront to God. He realizes that he's unable to fix himself. He can't do it on his own. He says, I am undone. And that word undone in verse 5 is very interesting because its root word in Hebrew ultimately means to be silent. And this is an incredible picture because what we see here is Isaiah is witnessing these creatures crying out, Holy. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he realizes that he's unable to participate. He realizes that there's something in him that is prohibiting him to come to God. There's something in him that makes it where he can't cry out, holy, holy, holy. There's something in him that God has to restore and take away and make new before he's able to cry out in worship To God. The contrast between Isaiah and the seraphim is stark. The seraphim are clean. They're able to come before God. They're able to worship him in his presence. But Isaiah is unclean and unable to join in. Woe is me. I am ruined. He sees God, but he also sees his sin. He sees his depravity. When we get a glimpse of God, we can't help but see our sin. We can't help but see the things in our lives, the things of rebellion, the the things of self-worship, the things that stand contrary to a good and holy king. Isaiah had seen God in all his glory, and he was cut to the heart. He was anguished by his sin. God had to break Isaiah before he could ever use him. He had to break Isaiah before he could use him. Isaiah couldn't just be concerned about others. He couldn't just be concerned about his country and his nation that had walked away from God. He had to be cut to the heart himself. He had to be anguished over his sin and the sins of others. David Wilkerson, in his gripping sermon titled A Call to Anguish, and I I encourage you to listen to that this week. If you get through it with a dry eye, pray and then watch it again. And then watch it again. And then watch it again. He says this, There can be no renewal, no revival, no awakening, until we are willing to let God once again break us. We must be broken by God. We must see our sin. It must anguish our hearts. Conviction isn't popular, but it is necessary for us to be restored to God and to be used by him. Sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. It's the reality that Isaiah knows. It's the reality that Isaiah is saying, woe is me, I have sin, I can't stand here. But sin isn't the final word. Sin is not the end of the story. Our brokenness does not write the final chapter. God isn't appearing to Isaiah here to kill him. He isn't appearing here to Isaiah to strike him down. After Isaiah confesses his sin, an angel of the Lord, the seraphim takes a coal from the altar. Touches Isaiah's lips. And in verse 7 says, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. It's gone. He's made new. He's restored. The guilt of his sin, gone. Erased. There's no more record of his wrongdoing. God has restored him. God has reconciled him. God has made a way. Though sin separated him from God, God intervened. He stood in the gap, provided a way of salvation. Conviction leads to confession, which leads to restoration. Conviction is good. It shows us where we've gone wrong. It leads us to confess our sin before God. And God, in turn, doesn't say, you dirty, rotten sinner. He says, I have made a way of forgiveness. I forgive you. I love you. I see you. And I am making you new. That's what God does here to Isaiah. He takes away Isaiah's sin and makes him pure. Atonement is the only way that Isaiah is able to stand before God and live. He has his sins atoned for. They're covered up. They're washed away. Without atonement, there is no hope. He can't do it on his own. We can't do it on our own. Isaiah knows his sin. He knows that he deserves death. And yet, He encounters God and God forgives him and restores him. Not because Isaiah is worthy, but because of the grace of God. Because of the character of God. Not because of the character of Isaiah. He already admitted that he's unclean. He's already admitted that he's ruined. It's the character of God that makes a way. An experiential understanding of this changes everything for Isaiah. He doesn't need it theoretically. He needs it experientially. He experiences God. He experiences the forgiveness. Like Isaiah, our sin condemns us before God. Scripture tells us that all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We've lied. Yeah, it may have been a little white lie. We've stolen. Yeah, it was just a candy bar. We've cheated. Yeah, it was just test answers. We've committed adultery. It was just a little glance. All of these things condemn us before God. He is holy. He is perfect. The rightful ruler of heaven and earth. And we have sinned before him. We've made life about us instead of about him. We don't measure up to a holy God. We don't measure up. We are ruined. We are undone. We cry out, woe is me. It's the proper response to who God is. But we're not without hope. We're not without hope. We're not without hope. Listen to what John writes about Jesus in 1 John 2. -2. He says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. God has made a way. Jesus has made a way. Just as he did for Isaiah, he has provided atonement for us. Just as God came near to Isaiah, he came near to us in the person of Jesus. Jesus wasn't just a good teacher, though he was a great teacher. He wasn't just a miracle worker, though he did work miracles. He was God himself. The one who came down into our brokenness, into our sin, into our shame. He took on flesh He lived the life we couldn't live. Died the death that we deserved on the cross, taking our sin and our shame upon him. And he was resurrected so that we can experience eternal life. Isaiah, later in the book of Isaiah, he goes on to prophesy about this Messiah He goes on to prophesy about this Jesus who is to come, this Jesus who will take away the sins of the world. I want you to listen in Isaiah 53, 3 through 11. This vision that Isaiah has. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Pain. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. This is what God has done for you. This is what our God has done. Hundreds of years before Jesus, Isaiah sees the Son of God, sees the one who is to come to restore all things, to make a way where there is no way. This Isaiah, who had his own sin atoned for, sees the one who is to come. The one who is to die upon the cross, taking our sins upon himself. Out of God's great love for you, out of his pure and wonderful and merciful love for you, he sent his one and only son to die so that you can live. He suffered excruciating pain upon the cross. It was the most painful po- form of punishment imaginable in the Roman world. They had perfected, the Romans did, the art of dying. Jesus was condemned to die a gruesome death upon the cross. For what charge was he condemned? For being the king of the Jews, for being the rightful ruler. For being the one who is to come and restore all things. In Mark 1, Jesus comes and he starts his ministry and he proclaims the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's what Jesus came to do, to declare that the kingdom of God has come near, that the king is before you. And his kingdom is unlike any other kingdom. His kingdom is a kingdom of love, a kingdom of forgiveness, a kingdom of grace, a kingdom of mercy, a kingdom where the enemies of the king are forgiven. Where they are not just forgiven, but they have a seat at the king's banquet table. That They get to dine with God. And not only that, if that wasn't good enough, not just their forgiveness, not just a seat at the table, but they get to become heirs of the king. He calls them their children, his children. Children of the Most High God, co-heirs with Christ. And we get all of this by true faith by recognizing who this king is, by placing our trust in him, declaring our allegiance to him. It's a faith that repents of our own lordship and declares Jesus as Lord. By grace, God saves us. By grace, he forgives us. And by grace, he redeems us. And by grace, he is coming again to renew the earth, to set all things right. He has come to establish his kingdom in his first coming. And he's coming again to make all things new. This moment in time that we live in now is the already, but not yet. It's the yearning towards the new creation. We see what Jesus has promised. We yearn for it. And we have hope that he will do what he says, because he always has before. The God who appeared to Isaiah, the God who prophesies through Isaiah and fulfills it in Jesus. Will do it again. He will be true to his word. If you're here today and and, and this is news to you. If this is new to you, I want you to know that nothing in your life, none of your sin, none of your shame, none of your guilt is too big, is too bad to receive God's grace and forgiveness. Nothing you have done is too bad to receive God's forgiveness. You know how you qualify for his forgiveness? By sinning. You are qualified to receive grace because you have sinned against him. Grace isn't based on who you are. It's not based on on what you've done. It's based on who God is and what God has done. He has made a way where there is no way. He will wash you clean. Fully clean. He will make you new. He will give you eternal life, life that's truly life. And it's not just this life that's for the future, it's life for here and now. It's a certain type of life, life like no other, life lived in light of the kingdom of God. When we surrender to Jesus, we receive a hope that doesn't fade away. No matter what's going on in our life, no matter what's going on in the world around us, it's a hope that we know because of what God has done before, we know what he's going to do in the future. We can trust in him. God's grace changes everything for us. And as we yield to him more, it changes everything in us. He changes everything for us and everything in us. We're empowered by His grace to live lives that are pleasing to God. To be instruments of the Most High God. As I've said many times before, we're both saved from sin and saved for mission. God never just saves us for ourselves. He saves us for the sake of the world around us. Isaiah's life again gives us a picture of this in verse 8. After he's received forgiveness, after he's received restoration, after he's seen God high and lifted up, verse 8 says this, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. God had wiped away Isaiah's sin, made him completely new, and now he's inviting Isaiah to be an instrument of his kingdom, to to go take the message of good news, to go take the story of God to those around him. It's never just for ourselves that God forgives us. It's for the sake of those around us. When we receive salvation, we're also receiving a call to go share the story of salvation with others. The call of God, the primary call of every Christian, that includes all of you here, even you're like, no, not me. Yes, you. The primary call of every Christian is to go make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. It's the primary calling of every Christian. Maybe you're sitting here like, well, I've never heard God's calling. He's never told me what it is I'm supposed to do. I guess I'm not called. I think I've shared this quote uh, before with us, but it's a quote from William Booth. He says this, Not called, not called did you say, not heard the call I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come here. Then look Christ at the face, in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey. And tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. All of us have been called by God. Every single one of us has been called by God to go share the good news of his gospel with the world around us this incredible calling, this incredible privilege. But it's a weighty calling. It's a weighty responsibility. Today in our world, according to the Joshua Project, 3.4 billion people belong to an unreached people group. Half of our world belongs to an unreached people group with little to no chance of hearing the good news of Jesus. 3.4 billion people. And sometimes it's unfortunately hard for us to, to let that sink into us. We're like, oh, you know, someone else will go, someone else will do the work, someone else will, will spend the money, someone else will, will go towards them. What about here? What about your neighbors? What about your family members? What about the grocery store workers that you encounter? What about the person who serves you coffee? What about your boss? In the North Country where we live, over 62% of people claim nothing at all is their religion. That's 240% higher than the average in the U.S. 62% of people, six out of every 10 people that you encounter say that they don't believe anything at all. There are none. There are nothing. Only, 4%, only 4.2% of people in the North Country are evangelical Christians. And that's not a a voting demographic. That's people who profess the living Lord Jesus as the only way of salvation, the Bible as the sufficient and inerrant word of God, and that God has sent us out to share his good news with others. 4.2% of people in the North Country profess to be evangelical Christians. Friends, we got some work to do. There's a mission field right here in front of us. It's not just halfway around the world. Though we should go to the ends of the earth. Though we should, be, we should spend and be spent for the sake of all the earth to hear the good news of Jesus. But it starts right here as well. It starts with our neighbors. It starts with our family members. It starts when we leave the doors of the sanctuary today. There are people, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people in the north country, in our region, in our towns, our neighbors who don't know Jesus. The question that God is still asking is who will go? Who will go? Will you take up the story of God and share it with others? Will you take up the message of reconciliation and share it with those who desperately need it? Will you give of yourself? Will you lay down your life so that others can come to know God? Will you surrender? Will you invest time and energy and money towards this end? Will you lay yourself down? Will you go? Will you respond? Will you say yes to God? Will you see his mercy? Will you see his grace? Will you see what he's done for you? And say resoundingly, send me, I'll go. Send me, I'll go. It won't be easy. It'll be difficult. There'll be times that you want to give up. There'll be times where it's too hard. There'll be times where you're like, I don't know if I can do this. But God's Holy Spirit empowers us to go. It's not our own might. It's not our own power. It's the Spirit of God that accomplished this this in us and through us. We were made for such a time as this. We were made for this time. It's no coincidence that you're living in this time period. It's no coincidence that you're living where you live. It's no coincidence. We were made for such a time as this. Charles Spurgeon once said, If sinners be damned, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees imploring them to stay. Yes, the world is dark. Yes, the world is full of sin. Yes, to all of those things. But God didn't save you so that you can say, oh, it's really bad out there. God saved you to go into all the world and say, look at this Jesus don't you get it? He, he loves you. He wants to restore you. Your sins, he died for them. He's done this. He's done these mighty things. And he's calling us to respond. We must intervene. We must tell the world of the grace of God that's available through Jesus. We were once as they are now. We were once enemies of God. We were once dead in our trespasses. We were once separated from God saying, Woe is me, I am undone. But we have received life. We have received forgiveness. We have received reconciliation. And so let's spend and be spent on sharing the good news of his grace. Let's go to all the world and tell them about this Jesus. Friends, my prayer today is that today is a day of surrender for us. That in surrender we would receive God's forgiveness and restoration. That we would surrender our lives to him. That we would respond to his call to go and make disciples. That we would respond to his call to surrender our lives. To surrender our ways. To take up the message of the kingdom of God. I believe wholeheartedly that we need to take some time today to surrender. To cry out, woe is me for I am unclean. Because when we do that, we're cleansed. We confess our sins to God, he cleanses us. We believe in Jesus. He washes it away. We place our faith in Him. If we make Him Lord, we're made new. And having been made new, let's join in with the chorus of those sitting around God and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let's worship Him. Let's surrender in worship. Let's cry out about his goodness. Let's cry out about who this God is. About what he has done for us and what he wants to do in the world around us. And having worshipped, having cried out of his goodness, let us then say, send me, I'll go. I'll go to the lost. I'll go to the damned. I'll go to those who are dead in their trespasses. And I will show them Jesus. Let's be those people. Let's surrender. Let's lay ourselves down today. Would you stand with me as we pray? As we pray, I, I just want us to lift our hands in a posture of surrender, saying, I, I let go of all things. Father, you are holy. Holy. There's no one like you in heaven or on the earth. You are enthroned above all things. You are worthy to receive all glory and honor and praise. There is none like you, God. And we recognize, as we stand before a holy God, that there is junk in us. That there is sin, that there is shame. And we cry out, woe is me. We are undone, God. We can't make ourselves pure. We can't make ourselves whole. But you make us clean. You provided the way. You provided for our salvation. You surrendered upon the cross. You surrendered to death upon the cross. You gave yourself for us. You've restored us, O oh God. You've washed away our sins. You've forgiven us. You've restored us. You've given us a seat at your table. And you've called us children of the Most High God. We're no longer sinners, but we're saints in your eyes. You look at us, you no longer see our sin and our rebellion and our junk. You see Christ in us, the hope of glory. You see his righteousness and not our unrighteousness. God, we praise you. We cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who was and is and is to come. We worship you today, God, and we surrender. We lay ourselves down, God. We have made this life about other things. We've forgotten our salvation. We've forgotten our redemption. We've forgotten our reconciliation. And today we surrender all of that, God. We lay ourselves down. We kneel before the cross today, oh God, and we say, Thank you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your redemption. Thank you, God. And we say, Send me, I'll go. To the ends of the earth, I'll go. To my neighbors, I'll go. I will take the message of the cross. I will take the message of the empty tomb. The crucified God. The risen God. To a world that desperately needs it. Send us, God. Send us today. Empower us with your Holy Spirit. Again, pour out your fire upon us today, O oh God. We need you, Lord. We need you, Lord. We can't do it on our own. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by your Spirit, O oh God. Now we cry out for our neighbors. They're dead in their trespasses. We cry out for the North Country. We cry out for the citizens around us. They're dead in their sin, oh God. They're separated from you. How would you do something incredible today? How would you do something mighty today, Lord? Would you awaken in us something new, something fresh? Would you light a flame our souls? we cry out to you, God. We surrender to you today. Send us. We'll go. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.